For those moments where it's unavoidable that you are splitting up with your partner, getting divorced, especially if there are kids involved, how do you do it in a way where everyone comes out the other end doing better? How do you have a good divorce? That is the topic of today's conversation. But first, the Relationship Alive podcast is my offering to you to help you have an amazing, thriving relationship, or if it's not working out so well, to help you exit gracefully. If you're finding the podcast to be helpful, please consider a donation to ensure that we can continue. All you have to do to choose something that feels right for you is visit neilsatin.com slash support or text the word support to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. And this week, I want to thank Carol, Kevin, Karina, Eleni, Timothy, Lydia, Angie, and David. Thank you all so much for your generous and ongoing support of the podcast. Now, one of the things that's most challenging when you're splitting up is how you communicate about what's happening. And your ability to communicate effectively in these moments really sets the tone for what's going to happen from here on out. Or your ability to communicate after the fact if things have gone a little bit off the rails can help you bring things back into uh, a way of interacting that at least doesn't feel quite so negative or traumatizing. So I put together a free guide to help you improve your communication in relationship. And these tips are good not only if you are in relationship, but also if you are leaving relationship. To download this free guide, all you have to do is visit neilsatin.com slash relate or text the word relate to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. And finally, if you are looking for a way to connect with other listeners of the Relationship Alive podcast, you can come join the Relationship Alive community on Facebook, where we've created a safe space for you to come and talk about what's going on and get support from other like-minded, growth-oriented people. So come find us on Facebook. And now, let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. Now, as you know, we come down strongly in favor of relationships on this show and in favor of helping you learn the skills required to have an amazing relationship, to turn your relationship around if things aren't going so well, and especially if things are really not going well, how do you find a, uh, a foothold and work your way back up to intimacy and togetherness? But as we've, as we've also talked about on the show, that isn't always possible. And when it's not possible, we stand also strongly in favor of finding ways to part from your partner uh, in ways that are kind, in ways that are loving, in ways where you can support each other. Uh, we've had Catherine Woodward Thomas on the show to talk about conscious uncoupling, her process of using the pain of a breakup to help grow and learn new skills and new development for yourself, things that you would bring to your next relationship. Today, I want to dive into the nitty gritty of What's required when you are ending a relationship? What kinds of things do you need to consider in order to have the best chance at being successful? And in order to have this conversation, we have a very special guest, Dr. Constance Ahrens, who is the author of the book, The Good Divorce, uh, among other books. And she was one of the first people to bring to popular awareness this idea that divorce doesn't have to be 
a stigma. It doesn't have to be all fire and brimstone and acrimony. And it also doesn't have to mean that now you've created us a, a broken family with kids suffering in the aftermath. Now, both I and Dr. Ahrens share at least one thing in common. We've both been through a divorce. And so this is a topic that's really personal for me as well. And her book has been really helpful for me, both in terms of my own situation and when I went through Catherine Woodward Thomas's Conscious Uncoupling Coach Training, she uses The Good Divorce as one of the textbooks for the coaches going through that training. So it's such an honor and a privilege to have Dr. Ahrens with us today. We will have a detailed transcript of today's episode, which you can get if you visit neilsatin.com slash divorce, or if you text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. I think that's it. So... Dr. Constance Ahrens, thank you so much for being here with us today on Relationship Alive. Thank you, Neil. I appreciate you asking me. Well, it's such an important topic. And it's interesting to me because your your book, at least the edition that I was reading, came out in the in the mid-90s. And at that time, you were talking about the importance of shifting the culture and our awareness of what's possible in terms of divorce. And you did this comprehensive study of what you called binuclear families, and we'll get into that in a moment. And and I think overall, though, the purpose was to, to get it out into the public sphere that divorce doesn't have to be this horrible thing, even though it's in many ways a setup to be a really traumatizing experience. Um, what's interesting is that Many years later, in fact, I think it was probably close to 20 years later when I was going through my divorce, my experience with my family was that it was, it was really hard to talk to them about the fact that, that I was going through a divorce. And in fact, one of my cousins kind of jokingly said, you might as well be telling them you have cancer. Like that's, that's what it feels like in, in our family. So I'm curious if we could start off by, just kind of talking about the context of how much has our um, notion of a good divorce being possible, how much have you seen that shift since you, since your book came out, The Good Divorce, and, and what do you think still needs to happen to help that conversation continue, along with things like you being here on the Relationship Alive podcast? You know, Neil, that's such an interesting question because it seems to, I mean, I, I believe that it's changed dramatically. But at the same time, I, I also find that some people still carry the stereotypic image that, you know, it's going to devastate the whole family. Children will always be destroyed in the process and will have long-term damage. And when I started to do this research, which was in 1989, that was the only stereotype that we had. That was the only literature that we had available to us. Um, and it was quite a shift. Um, my, my study was funded by the National Institutes of Mental Health. And um, it, it was even a shift for them to fund a study that was not looking for problems, that was looking instead for what does a divorce look like for how it affects children, how it affects parents, what is the relationship between ex-spouses like, uh, and trying to deal with the stereotype that we had that ex-spouses must, of course, be bitter enemies, and children, of course, must be damaged. And there was no literature in the field to say anything that was positive about divorce. And positive by, what I mean by positive is I'm not saying divorce is good. <laughs> and I need to make that distinction, which is very different from having a good divorce. And that sometimes is a, that distinction is sometimes hard to grasp because divorce in and of itself, it just is. It's not good. It's not bad. You can make it good. You can make it bad. But it, you know, it's, it, it is a fact of our culture and it's a fact of marriage. Still, we have the, 
you know, the, um, the, the same kind of percentages with about 50% of marriages ending up in divorce. So, you know, 50% of our population can't be all that bad. Uh, and so what I did find and what was most important about the study, and at the time, was groundbreaking. So we have to remember that this goes back now almost 30 years that it was groundbreaking, and not if we were looking at it today as much, uh, was the fact that not all divorces are destructive to the family. Not all ex-spouses hate each other. Not all divorces have to be full of fury and rage. That maybe there were different types of divorces. And that's what hadn't been studied. What had only been studied is the problems with divorce and just, you know, going from like A to B, divorce is necessarily bad, rather than there are lots of different outcomes from divorce and let's see what they look like. So that's what I have spent most of my career working on has been looking at the ex-spouse relationship, the relationship between former spouses when they are parents. And what does that relationship need to look like for the children to come through the divorce with a minimal amount of long-term damage? There is always pain, but the minimal amount of damage to the children. So there might be pain and crisis for a year or two. Uh, and in, in a good divorce where parents can continue to parent effectively, then the children are going to come through it better after the crisis. So there'll be an initial, you know, sometimes a year, sometimes only six months where, and it depends on the age of the children, of course, too, where there might be a great deal of upset and then it starts to calm down and parents begin to get into patterns with each other about how they continue to relate. Uh, but it takes a lot of work. Yeah, and you, I, I love how your focus is on uncovering what truly is in the best interests of the children, because that's something that it seems like it's just a matter of opinion in a lot of cases. Like, it's it's hard to pin down what qualifies as the best interests of the children. Well, remember that it is a very rare case that children want their parents to divorce. We found that even when there was high conflict in the marriage, children still frequently did not want their parents to divorce. So to find out exactly what it takes, and we had 98 pairs of former spouses in our study, and we interviewed them at one and three and five years post-divorce, interviewing both of the ex-spouses. And what we found is that the relationship with, between parents, as we did, by the way, in marital studies, we found the same thing in divorce, that how ex-parents continued to relate to one another related to how the children came through the process. So when ex-spouses could relate to each other in, in a way that I would call the good divorce, is when they could relate to each other in a way that was respectful, that they were mature enough to look at the difference between being parents and being spouses and being able to switch gears uh, and remember that they were indeed parents and then co-parents as well. And that divorce and co-parenting could be for a lifetime. So when we began to switch our thinking a little bit about this, we began to find that the strong relationship was how well the parents continue to relate. And of course, we use a number of different scales and different ways to look at the process and to understand what went on. And then importantly, we looked at change over five years and then the children's reactions 20 years later. And those findings were published in a book called We're Still Family, um, also by HarperCollins. So what we found over time is that for the most part, the relationship between former spouses was perhaps the most important factor. There were other factors in terms of resilience of children, how much support 
they had outside of their parents. Um, but when we looked at everything together, it was clearly that parents could determine a lot about how their children were going to react to their divorce over time, not just initially, but what was it like five years later? So this is really good news. And at the same time, I feel like it introduces uh, a kind of paradox or an irony about the whole thing. Uh, But before we talk about that, I would like to take a quick break to bring in my wife, Chloe, to talk about this week's sponsor, because they're amazing. They really are. It's actually been pretty life-changing for us recently to have this sponsor in our lives. Yes, because we live on the go. And as much as we are trying to build more and more spaciousness in our lives so that we can take time to cook, um, it's not always possible. And this week's sponsor, HungryRoot.com, sent us a box of the most amazing food that is either ready to eat already or can be prepared in 10 minutes or less. And the best part is they're all plant-based. A lot of it's organic and just such delicious food and really, really healthy. Each thing we've eaten, it doesn't feel like there's any guilt or like, oh, this is kind of crappy for me or anything like that. It's super yummy and super healthy and gluten-free. Gluten-free. Yeah. The very first thing we made was this sweet potato mac and cheese that was delicious And I have to mention the almond butter chickpea cookie dough that they sent, which is ridiculous, is so good. good. It's like a chocolate chip cookie dough that you can eat raw because it's all plant based ingredients and you can bake it. I haven't gotten around to baking it yet (laughs) because it's so good. And uh, there are so many different selections. They sent a recipe and ingredients for pad thai fried rice. And it's not actually made with rice. It's made with cauliflower that's chopped up into little bits that are kind of like rice. That was also delicious. The kids ate that. I know. And what I love is I don't even eat grain at all. So, so many of these dishes, you can just have their like, you know, beet noodles or sweet potato noodles or cauliflower rice or whatever it is. It's It all just feels so nourishing and delicious. It's really clean food, but it it's the recipes are designed, I think, so that it feels like comfort food. Right. So they are offering $25 off your first two orders with them if you visit HungryRoot.com and use the coupon code ALIVE at checkout. And you can customize what you get from them, so you can look through all the ingredients and choose the things that feel the best to you. You can take things away, add things. You can skip weeks if you don't want to get a delivery from them for a week. So there are no commitments. And I'm just really impressed with what they offer. So again, visit HungryRoot.com and use the coupon code ALIVE for $25 off your first two orders. Yeah, it's kind of a game changer. So I hope you like it. Yes. Let us know how you like that cookie dough, because I know you're going to try it. (laughs) Okay. So let's get back to the conversation with Constance Ahrens and dive in a little more deeply to this paradox, this irony. So what I'm noticing is that there's some irony there, right? That the reason that you're splitting up with someone, unless you just kind of lost interest is maybe that you don't really get along so well, or, I mean, obviously there's a whole host of possible issues that take, that bring two people apart. Um, but it sounds like what you're saying is, is if there are kids involved now, if there aren't kids involved, you can just kind of go your separate ways. And, you know, there may still be things to figure out about property divisions and things like that. But if there are kids involved, you're still going to have to figure out how to get along, even if it was something that vexed you as a married couple. That's very correct. But if you don't figure out how to get along, then you're going to really run into a lot of problems with your kids over the years. But there is a difference between not getting along as spouses 
but being able to get along with parents. I often see couples who come and tell me that we're great as parents. We are really good parents. I respect her or his parenting. We do fine together as parents, but we just can't live together. You know, my my anger with him or her is about, you know, as, as being married to one another, being partners, being spouses. That's where my anger is. So it takes some learning, and it also takes a lot of maturity that says, for the sake of our children, we are not going to keep enacting the same marital communication that we had that brought us to the level of divorce. That we're going to try to, in fact, parents often become better parents, and many talk about having better relationships once they are not living in the same household. Now, if we could, let's just quickly enumerate the the different, I think you call them uh, typologies of, of mm-hmm. post-divorce families. Um, just to give our listeners a chance if you if you're if you're in a divorced situation or a post divorce situation these are the possible couplings that or decouplings that you may find yourself in and they each have their their impact on on the outcome in terms of what we are talking about the best interests of the children and probably also your own best interest in terms of your own levels of stress and being able to function well in your life, in your non-married life, to that person anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, what you're referring to is that coming out of the research data, you know, we did all sorts of fancy things with factor analysis and so on and came up with some typologies. So we came up with five typologies that were at one point given very academic names and then we changed the names with the help of my daughters to some much more acceptable names that everybody could understand and identify with. And so we came up with five types, essentially, but it's really a continuum. So it's not, you know, as, as set, off, set, set differently as it sounds like, but it's that they run the continuum from very, very angry to friendly. So starting at, we'll start at the friendly end. So first group we called the um, friendly, you know, I've forgotten the name of that. The perfect pals. Perfect pals, that's right. And that was a small group as you would anticipate it would be. But it was couples that, that usually when they divorced, they'd been friends in the marriage. And then whatever went awry, went awry and they got divorced. But they, they still had a friendship that they continued. The next group, which is where the majority of the couples fell into, was called cooperative colleagues. And this is a group of people who would not call themselves friends. And so if, if, if you think of a collegial relationship, it may even be with somebody you don't like who smokes in the next room to you or you don't like their language or whatever, but <clears throat> for the sake of the job you're doing, you cooperate. Well, it's the same in parenting. For the sake of parenting, for the sake of your children, you learn to cooperate and and you learn what things not to talk about, what things to talk about. We talk about things like what boundaries shall we set up about what's acceptable to discuss and what's not acceptable, what's going to get us into a fight and what's not. How can we stay with talking about the kids and not talking about, well, when you did this to me 20 years ago and so on. So that was very important. And those people we called cooperative colleagues who could stifle the anger. They weren't best friends by any means, but they learned to put their children's interests before their own at that point and learned not to go back into old history. And they learned to cooperate as parents and they were good um, co-parents over time. The next group we had were the uh, angry associates. And the angry associates, <clears throat> you could push their buttons just by asking them any questions about their marriage and off, they were off and running. And they had trouble separating out the differences between being ex-spouses and being, um, you know, parents, co-parents after divorce. And those boundaries were blurred for them. Um, and then we had a group that fell in below that called the fiery foes. And the fiery foes really could not stop fighting. 
So essentially, they could not have a conversation that didn't end up in conflict. And of course, the children were often caught in that conflict. And uh, the sad part about it, that that in many of those situations, and with the fiery foes, um, that the children, if it was a bad marriage, a high-conflict marriage, they were caught in a high-conflict divorce. And then we have the, uh, a group called the Dissolved Duos, and in that group, one parent drops out of the relationship with the children, and frequently that parent is the dad. And those, each of those types, or the continuum of types, had an effect on children, and had an effect down, down line of, um, I'm sorry, I'm saying goodbye to somebody, and, and, and had the effect down, down the line of, of stressing the children out for, for many years following the divorce. So when parents continued to play out the marital conflicts through their, their divorce, for whatever reason, sometimes it was maturity, sometimes it was just not, not knowing how to let go of anger, uh, but for whatever reasons, if they could not move beyond the marriage and talk about their children's best interests and how to deal with that most effectively, then the children, of course, would feel that over the years. And so I just for a minute there, I think it would help if I moved on to what the, um, the, the book We're Still Family is about. Great. 20 years after the, the divorce, we went back and interviewed 163 children from the 98 families. I was wondering about that, if, if you had done follow-up. Yes. Yeah, and that's in We're Still Family. And we didn't have enough funds. We would have loved to have interviewed the parents as well at, at 20 years post-divorce, but we decided it was most valuable to interview the children. And that's where we also were funded for. And, um, and we found out from the kids, not surprisingly, really, from the kids, that when they looked back, they felt that the, the, the kids who did the best, the children who came through, you know, the, the, the divorce process in the healthiest way that they could, had parents who had, were, were more like cooperative colleagues, who had learned over the years. And because it was 20 years after the divorce, these 163 adult children could then reflect on how things changed over the years as well and what they were most comfortable with. Because as you would expect, most people at that time had remarried by then. Almost everyone had remarried and some had re-divorced during their 20-year span. But the children were able to reflect back and say to us the same thing that we were finding with the parents, that when their parents found a way to get along. They didn't have to be friendly. They might only, parents might only see each other at family occasions, a child's graduation, a wedding, and so on. When they were able to not put children in the middle and function well as co-parents, the children did better. And the one thing the children hated the most is when their parents continued to fight. Mm. And that was the most destructive to children. And as you would expect, Different children in the same family had different responses, which were dependent on their age at the time, their personal resilience, what kind of support they had. Um, because children showed us very strongly that there were other factors that entered in that could help them in difficult times. And that could be a coach in school, or it could be a grandparent, or a close adult friend of their parents somebody who intervened at a time when their parents were not able to function very well. And these children learned who they could depend on outside of their parents to help them through. And some kids, you know, some of us are just born with more resilience than others. And um, the age at which the children were when their parents divorced made a big difference. And sometimes whether they had older siblings who were able to help them through the crisis. Uh, the, you know, there, there were a number of factors, but the one that just kept popping up over and over and over again was how the parents continued to relate even 20 years later. And sometimes they related poorly in the first three to five years, 
but improve their relationship over the years. And that had an impact as well. It's never too late to have a good divorce. So let's start there. Um, and because I have two questions that are that are closely related, but let's start there with let's say that you're listening, you're divorced, and that's probably true for a lot of my listeners because so many of us are, you know, we go through that first marriage, we get divorced, and then we're like, okay, I'm going to do it right the next time. And so you're tuning into Relationship Alive to hopefully get it right the next time. Um, but let's say you're hearing these descriptions, and and if you're like me, you might be thinking, wow, I'm, you know, sometimes we're cooperative colleagues and other times we're angry associates, and and I, I would love to be more strongly in the cooperative colleagues camp for the sake of my kids and for the sake of my life. So what are some ways that you advocate for people to, to start moving the needle in that direction for their relationship with their ex-spouse? Well, the first is what you mentioned, which is motivation. You know, I really want to do this. I want to improve what's going on with my ex. And, you know, that they knew that if they could parent better, that they would be better, you know, that their children would profit from that. So the first thing is is just an awareness of doing that. Second is to know what your hot buttons are. You know, what happens when you talk with your ex on the phone? Why does it all of a sudden end up in conflict? What happens? And so to understand, you know, what does happen and what particularly gets you set off and where the anger comes from and to be able to stay away from those areas. I'm not suggesting that we get over all of our anger at an ex-spouse from a 20-year marriage, for example. But I, I am suggesting that you can find ways to at least not keep stepping into that same trap again of every time I say this, he says that, and off we go. So it's, if, if I'm working with couples and trying to establish a better relationship over time, you know, I help them to see where they get into trouble. What happens? What kind of conversations do they get into that takes them on a bad road? And almost always, it, it's the same kind of conversation over and over again. It's when they get into some of their own spousal history. And, you know, that it comes, it falls into, when you start to talk about the kids, can you stay on the, that plane of just talking about the children without going into recriminations where you always did that or do you remember when you did this and so on. But rather staying trying to stay as much as possible in the present, focus on the children. If things get hot, calm things down. If you're on the phone, say, why don't we talk later? Um, sometimes couples only do well if they're meeting Starbucks, for example, but they really can't meet alone. Never have these discussions in front of the children. It's always better to have a separate time when you talk about this. To really, for each of the spouses, to identify within themselves when do I start to see red flags? When do I feel myself getting angry? When am I feeling, and when am I getting off the track? When are we talking about what to do for, you know, Janie's birthday, and all of a sudden we're talking about 10 years ago when this happened, or when that happened, or you always did this in the marriage. And also to understand that your partner, your ex-spouse, is also changing. Because one of the things we found is that dads often became better parents after divorce. And sometimes it was hard for their former spouse, spouses to accept that change. Well, you know, you were never there when they needed you before. How come now all of a sudden you're willing, you know, to do this for the kids or do that for the kids? Or... And the other thing was to accept that we never change anybody else. And so to be able to accept you know, that she was always late. She was never on time. Then anticipate that she's probably going to be late several times when you're picking up or dropping off the kids <laughs> and allowing some space for that. Because, you know, it comes up so often. And what I'll say to if I'm seeing one of the couple at the time, I'll say to them, well, did she do that in the marriage too? 
And the ex-husband would look, well, yeah, yeah. And did you try to change her? Oh, for 20 years I tried to change her. And did it work? No, it didn't work. Well, don't think it's going to work now. If you couldn't change somebody, especially in the time of a loving relationship, you are certainly not going to change them in a time in an unloving relationship. What have you seen work as far as, like, let's say I'm the the ex-partner who's listening to this podcast and, and I'm thinking, okay... I want to I want to take the initiative and help try to shift uh shift us toward being cooperative colleagues. Have you are there ways that you've seen in particular that work for introducing that conversation? You know, like hey, I read this book called The Good Divorce, you know, something along those lines where you're like, let's 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 step back a minute and just look at how we're doing here. And maybe there are ways we could do this better or where we'd feel less stressed out with each other. Or is there something that you've seen really helpful for um, people who want to make that shift towards the more positive interaction style? Well, I think most helpful is when they have some good intervention, when they see a counselor together, which many people do after divorce, Because what you can accept from somebody else, like how about you read this book, you may not accept from your spouse or from your former spouse. You may be resistant to anything that your former spouse presents you um, as being biased or whatever, where sometimes a third party can help by presenting the same information that your ex would present, but in a way that you can hear it better, that doesn't feel critical. And, and, and that makes a world of difference. I think at varying points in time, it, it usually benefits most couples going through a divorce and afterwards to get some kinds of, you know, help, whether it's counselors, mediators, um, those people that can give you, you know, a third party view, uh, a view that isn't biased, that can, you know, help you sort out you know, what's going on. And frequently that person may see each of you individually to get a real handle on things, to be able to coach you. We're doing much more coaching today. So it's not therapy. You know, it's, it, it's much more related to the current situation, not to go back into the history of the marriage, but to go forward with how are we going to re- relate from here on, no matter what went on in the marriage. How are we going to be able to handle that? But very frequently it takes somebody outside the two of you to bring in that new in, in information in, in a way that you can hear. So I strongly suggest that, and especially in times of remarriage, there are varying times in, in the post-divorce relationship between ex-spouses. There are times we can almost predict when there's going to be a crisis that is looming. And one of them is recoupling, having a new partner, you know, remarrying and, and, and all of the possibilities within that. The other partner has children of their own, changes in schedules are difficult, uh, moving away. There are all sorts of situations that are going to produce a crisis and how you come through that crisis will predict a lot about how you're going to manage the next 5, 8, 10, 15 years. The thing to remember is that once you're parents, you are parents forever. If you want to be involved, in your children's lives. Uh, and if you know that you're going to grandparent together, for example, you better start pretty early on trying to have a good relationship so that neither one of you loses out on times with the children. You know, there are too many children I've heard recently who have said, you know, I'm not going to have a wedding because I can't stand having to deal with my parents together in one room. So we're just going to elope. <laughs> or or we're not going to invite one of the parents, usually right. dad. And that's how dads get left out a lot. And if you want to avoid those kinds of situations, then it pays to do all the work that you can early on so that you can try to avoid those situations so that 10 or 15, 20 years later, you are still able to enjoy all the wonderful occasions that come with children. You don't want a graduation occurring and the kids being scared to death because mom and dad are going to fight, 
and who are they going to go up to afterwards, you know, after the graduation, and parents sitting on the opposite side of, you know, the assembly or wherever the graduation is occurring. And the child is the one who has to look back and forth, has to make the, you know, the decisions about who's going to have dinner, who's going to have the party, you know, and so on. Whereas if parents can do some of this deciding, it, it makes it much better for the children. They're not caught in between in the same way. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I've heard of children being invited by both parents for dinners, separate dinners at the same time by both parents. Well, that's terrible for kids. Right. The last thing you want to do is, you know, the worst thing for children is to be caught into a loyalty conflict between their parents. If I choose mom, dad will be furious. So you want to help your children by the two of you deciding beforehand how are things going to go. You don't have to do everything together, but at least don't do them concurrently. Don't have mom and dad having a party at 6 o'clock in their own homes at, you know, the same night. Uh, at least split up the evenings or something. Right. There's a situation that I've seen in clients, and I, I'm curious for your take on this, which is, and I love your your uh, practical advice here, like figure out what your hot button items are and just don't talk about them. <laughs> like try to keep it about the That's kids. Right. And yet many times the contentious issues end up being things like what's our visitation schedule? How much is the child support going to be? Um, that sort of thing. And so I'm wondering when you, when you're in that kind of thing where it's like, okay, you know, it's going to be contentious, but maybe one of the one of the um, ex partners wants to be collegial and wants to just say, "Hey, like, let's work through this." And the other one is more stuck in angry associate mode, where they're just like, "Nope, you know, I'm not. I don't have to listen to you. That's why I divorced you, et cetera, et cetera." What do you suggest that helps people come to the table around an issue that really can't be avoided like that? Well, you know, I mean, that's an important question because rarely are two people in the same place at the same time in terms of their emotions. Mm -hmm. So I, I think, you know, the best we can hope for is that one of them hopefully will take the high road and not get into that fight over and over again. And then if they can't, then get some help for how can we get around this? How can we find some way to compromise. It's all about compromise, just as marriage is too, for that matter. <laughs> so how can we, you know, find a way to compromise where, you know, we, we have to accept some, well, some things and not others. Sometimes parents do trade-offs. I'll give you this if you'll give me that. You know, so if you'll give me that extra day next week, I'll give you that extra day next month. You know, what they're fighting about, usually what the things you're talking about is child support and, and, and and issues which are frequently contentious, they're not really about the kids. They're about the parents. Right. They rarely fight about the children, I find, directly related to the children, except if you have people whose value systems are very, very different. You know, and one is very conservative and the other is very liberal, and they want their children to be brought up that way, or big religious differences I've, I've found are problematic. But they're things that are definitely related to the children and not related to each other. Right. And, yeah, sometimes you do have to take the high road. You have to bite your tongue and you have to say, okay, I'll compromise here if you'll compromise there. And that sometimes works out very well by seeing a mediator. And sometimes it only takes one or two sessions with a mediator, you know, to help you come to some compromise solution. Right, right. That's... One thing I love about mediators is hopefully they're very skilled in their training, which is all about helping everyone get their needs met. Um, yes. And I also appreciate, too, that you do you still do coaching and consulting to help people around collaborative divorce. Your books are um, great guideposts, especially the good divorce for like how to how to recognize these uh different characteristics that you you want to shoot for that that become your ideal so you kind of know what you're modeling after um 
Constance, I'm wondering if we could take one last moment to chat about if someone is here and thinking, okay, like I'm, I'm headed down this path, I'm getting divorced. What's a, what's a key element for that person to help steer the conversation towards the path of one that will leave them as cooperative colleagues so that they're, they're starting off on the right foot? Because we've spent a lot of time talking about people who maybe aren't quite there, but who are already divorced. Well, one important thing is don't use an adversarial process. I am a firm believer in using an out-of-court process because it doesn't escalate things. When you tend to use an adversarial process, the issues become escalated. Somebody has to win, somebody has to lose. You want to use a process where you hope it's going to be a win-win And so the first thing I would say is don't try an adversarial process. Don't go to the lawyer and say, I want to get the most out of this that I can get. And, you know, I want the kids all this time. He or she didn't do very much for the kids and wasn't good. Don't don't try to get your way in the divorce. So instead, choose a path that is non-adversarial. Choose a path like mediation. I'm a firm believer in collaborative divorce because it's a non-court approach by a team. And I think that that's a very effective, you know, approach to coming up with resolving the differences. And it's almost always using compromise. But the major part of it is it's the lawyers and um, divorce coaches and child specialists and financial people all sit around the table together and says, we as a team, which includes the clients, are going to work together to make this the best divorce we can possibly make it. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not going to be problems and differences. Of course, there's going to be. I've yet to see one divorce where there isn't that. And But it's how can we resolve those in a productive way, all of us working toward the best interests of the children and always putting the children up front. And you talk about creating a limited partnership agreement, like like figuring out what your principles are and how you're going to co-parent and and spelling it out ahead of time before you even end up in front of lawyers or a judge. Absolutely. It's very important. For, as we were talking about a little bit earlier, Neil, is, you know, what do you do when every time you talk on the phone you end up fighting and so on? In a limited partnership, you decide quickly, okay, what are the limits to this partnership? We are going to be partners. We are parents who are partners. Divorce or mar- married or remarried. You know, how are we going to work toward the same goal, which is to having a good divorce come out of this, where we can continue to relate to our children, continue to give them the best possible options in life by having two parents who love them and that that be the major focus and and not having two parents who are constantly fighting. I'm not sure that answered your question, but I, I think I was headed in that direction. <laughs> it does. And, and this makes me think that this term that we started out the episode with um, a binuclear family. You talk in, in The Good Divorce about how challenged we are to have words that actually portray yes. the outcome of divorce in a positive light, that the words themselves are hard. So um, maybe in closing, you could just explain what's so important about binuclear, because I, I think it's such a valuable way of envisioning what happens next. Well, you know, by you know, binuclear, I think if I could develop a different term than I did, I used binuclear because essentially I'm a social psychologist. So essentially I was looking to say, what else can we be but a nuclear family? The nuclear family does split, and it splits into two households. And so if you think of two households as binuclear, so that we are one family that lives in two households, it's a wonderful message to give children is to say to them, you know, we are still family. We live in two households. We maybe some parents will decide to do things together, sometimes celebrate holidays and, you know, have family dinners once a month or something. Other families will not. But that we still are a family. And it's just a family that is in two households now. It, it 
you know, it is binuclear. It's very, very helpful for the children. But when you think about the terminology, we've only had negative terminology about divorce. Isn't there a better term than ex-spouses? <laughs> I wish More, there were. I mean, you know, well, there is. We talk about ourselves now as co-parents. <laughs> yes. Perfect. We encourage people not to refer to my ex, but to refer as to my co-parent. And, you know, people from there say, oh, well, why is language so important? Well, language is very important. You know, it really determines what our next steps will be and how we can think about ourselves. Right. It, it's part of what frames the, the emotional state that comes from contemplating any That's situation. Right. Yeah, and I'm shocked that in all these years, I've seen very little change in that area. I still hear that nobody's come up really with getting co-parent as acceptable as X. People still say my ex rather than my co-parent. Yeah. One is negative and one is in the past and one is positive. I'm going to let's let's commit right here and now that we're going to work on that that change in terms. And the other one I want to put out there that I think I've mentioned on the show before is cuz I'm I'm remarried and we've talked about uh Chloe my wife being my kid's bonus mom um mm-hmm. as a way of putting a positive spin on that. And it, that's nice for kids because, as you probably know, stepmothers have a terrible image. You can <laughs> they do. See. You can't find anything positive about stepmothers. All of the humor, everything is directed at them, and it's a negative image. And that's all kids hear. They'll say to them, oh, you're going to have a stepmother? You know, as if it's awful. So I think bonus mom is terrific. Yeah, yeah, the language does matter. Well, oh, it um, makes a big difference. Constance, thank you so much for being here with us on Relationship Alive. Such important work. Uh, again, if you want to get a transcript of today's episode, you can visit neilsatin.com slash divorce or text the word passion to the number 33444. Uh, we will have links to Dr. Aaron's website um, and her books on the show page for this episode so that you can connect with her, read her books, and um, and perhaps if you're going through this, you can even get some guidance from her about how to, how to go through the process. But thank you so much for being with us today, Constance. Well, thank you, Neil, for, for keeping up the good work. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of Relationship Alive. If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive community Facebook group. And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com slash podcast. Or you can always text the word passion, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive, either for a future or past guest? Let me know and I'll see what I can do. Take care and see you next time.